Hi, I'm Jennifer Saucier, Senior Director of Clinical Genetic Services at Natera. Femtech to me is giving women access to the latest genetic information to manage their pregnancies and their risk for hereditary cancer. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto. In today's episode, I interview Jennifer Saucier, the Senior Director of Clinical Genetic Services at Natira. Natira is one of the largest providers of non-invasive prenatal testing and genetic counseling. Prenatal testing provides insights into the risk of a fetal genetic abnormality and can help inform pregnancy management before and after birth. Genetic counselors are a critical healthcare provider that help families understand the results of the genetic test and guide them to make decisions about the health of the mom and the baby. Something that fascinated me in this interview was how the overturning of Roe versus Wade has deep implications on prenatal testing and how genetic counselors can, or rather cannot, do their jobs to the fullest. To learn more about Natera, visit natera.com at n-a-t-e-r-a.com. Enjoy the episode. Hey, Jennifer, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thanks for having me on. Always great to have you on. Um, are you yourself a genetic counselor? I am a genetic counselor. I've been a genetic counselor for close to 20 years now. <laughs> All right. So quick little side story for my listeners and for you. My first dream job was genetic counseling. And in, in at high school, I knew I loved genetics. I was a blessed little nerdy teenager who knew I loved DNA. Um, and I say blessed because I know a lot of like grown adults today that still don't know what they want to do. I was mm-hmm. blessed by knowing I want to do something in DNA. Um, and then uh, in college, I wanted to do a genetic counselor and I shadowed one for the day. And my experience that day was that the genetic counselor spent their day telling women really sad news. And I was like, way, I mean, I'm a, I'm still a little emotionally unstable. Like everyone on the show knows I'm, I'm an emotional person, (laughs) but in college, I like still did not have any tool sets. And so when I saw that the whole day was sad, I was like, I picked the saddest career in the world. And I had a whole, like, what am I going to do? And then I got an internship in a laboratory and the rest is history. But side side note, y'all were my first career choice. And I'm excited today to potentially even heal some of my own uh, experience. (laughs) Past trauma, past trauma. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) a beautiful career too. So a little side side note for you. Um, Well, I think it's amazing that you knew about genetic counseling in high school. I I will say I just recently, I have two teenage girls and I was allowed to go speak to the high school um, with my oldest and was pleasantly surprised that the most of the people there actually were familiar with genetic counseling. Um, I will say that wasn't the experience that I had when I discovered genetic counseling 20 years ago. It was one of those things that most people had never heard of. Oh yeah. 
no, I was in high school. I graduated 2009. And so it was kind of, a, at least I could Google it. But mm-hmm. when I talked about it, no one really knew what I meant. Um, yeah. And I didn't necessarily know what I meant either. I just was like, it's about like talking to people about science. Yep. And I like that. And here yes. I am a podcaster. So that I guess it kind of worked <laughs> out. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, before we kick into the business and genetic counseling and how that impacts women's health, we first always love to learn a little bit more about our guests. So Jennifer, can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you're from? You know, when did you learn about genetic counseling? How'd you get into it? And how did you end up here at Natira? Yeah, I know. Happy to. So um, I am actually from Texas. I've always lived in Texas. I grew up in Texas. I grew up in a small town in Southeast Texas. Um, Not something where I had familiarity with genetics or genetic counseling. But um, when I was picking my undergraduate degree, I went to Texas A&M and College Station. Um, Genetics was one of those things that just sounded new and exciting and cool. Um, So I kind of randomly selected that as my major. And once I got into school, realized, similar to your experience and realizing that counseling wasn't a good fit for you. I spent some time in the lab and went, oh no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, this, is, have- this is not for me. Yeah. <laughs> you can have that effect on people. Yeah. <laughs> and so very quickly tried to pivot and realize like, okay, what else can I do with that? And like you said, I, you know, my impression of genetic counseling when I was an undergrad, I was like, this is great, right? I'm going to be able to speak to people about genetics. I don't actually have to hold a pipette, um, but I can kind of serve as that liaison, right? Between um, regular people and the laboratory. And so that was kind of my draw to it. And so went to get my master's degree in genetic counseling. I went to the University of Texas in Houston. Um, and so after that, after I graduated, um, I was fortunate enough to get a genetic counseling gig um, up in Temple, Texas, at a very small rural hospital where I was the only counselor. Um, got to do a bunch of fun everything, being the only counselor there. So I did prenatal, peds, hereditary cancer, a little bit of adult. I got exposed to IRBs, um, all that kind of fun stuff in my first job. So it was a great kind of get your feet wet, um, kind of do all the things job. And then after a couple of years, um, kind of made the switch over to industry. I went and worked for a company named Genzyme, which is um, no longer in existence, but at that time um, was a was a laboratory. It got purchased by LabCorp eventually after I left. But I worked out of two different maternal fetal medicine offices in Austin, um, meeting with prenatal patients who were being offered genetic testing. Um, then I decided to have some kids. Had some kids, um, kind of pivoted to more at a work from home position and started, um, took a part time position for a small little startup um, at that time, which was called Gene Security Network, which fortunately has has kind of grown and taken off from there and is where I still work and, and we're now named Natera. Um, so I've been there for close to over 12 years. Um, at this point. So um, kind of worked out really nicely for me. Love that story. That's a great story. Well, mm-hmm. let's, uh, what is Natira and what is genetic counseling? Yeah, sure. So Natera is a leader in cell-free DNA testing. So that's where we kind of got our start. Um, at this point, we service different kind of segments um, of patients. We started off in reproductive, specifically looking at women's health, um, but now we have testing products in oncology as well as organ health. Um, so we kind of run the gamut of different products um, that that service those different patient populations. Um, and genetic counseling is really the, you know, it is the process of explaining to people um, genetic concepts. Um, So really what the counselors do from the laboratory perspective um, is we service both external, what I would call external 
clients as well as internal. Um, so what we do a lot of is speak with clinicians who are considering ordering a genetic test. And so we'll talk with them about, hey, this is what the testing can do. This is what the testing cannot do. Um, and speak with clinicians um, after they've ordered a test. Make sure they understand, again, what are these test results telling me? What are they not telling me? Um, similarly, we meet with patients um, and provide that same level of service. Maybe before a test, a patient's going, hey, I really don't understand what this test does. We have counselors that are available to meet with those patients over the phone and kind of go through the ins and outs, the risks, the benefits, the limitations of the testing. And then on the other side of it, if they decide to have a test, run through those results with them, make, they, make sure they understand what is this test actually telling me? Um, what should I think about next? Um, so we get to service those. And obviously we, we serve some internal purposes as well, looking at just the business side of things, making sure that the voice of the patient is kind of heard internally in the company and kind of play that role as patient advocates um, within the company as well. I already feel healed. Uh, it sounds so much less traumatic than my one day shadowing that person. It must have well, been like I, a results day. And so I just, I, was like, I will have to say, I mean, there has been a big shift in counseling to a lot of people moving to industry. I think it's kind of been a win-win relationship yeah. for, the, for the laboratories simply because they want to be, they want people to understand the test. And obviously mm -hmm. the counselors can do that. But honestly, there is a lot of burnout that happens in genetic counseling in the hospital. So you're a experience of seeing that happen um, in real life, that is the experience that wears on a lot of counselors who are meeting with patients day in and day out, that oftentimes it can be very routine a day. And then when it's different, it can be someone's worst day of their life. Now, obviously you're trained to break bad news and go through that, but I would be lying to say that doesn't affect you as a human, right? Like every day in and out, kind of, kind of dealing with that situation. Well, so I would it, say crisis diverted on behalf of myself because my twenties was a lot of emotional growth. And I don't right. know if I could have done that with this career, but yeah. uh, I'm so grateful for the things that y'all do. Tell us really quickly, what is cell-free DNA and where does one find DNA that's not in a cell? Yeah. So basically when you're thinking about it from a reproductive perspective, one of our tests is something called non-invasive prenatal testing. And what that is, is on a pregnant patient, we can take some blood um, and we can isolate pieces of DNA that's floating in the bloodstream and the pregnant woman or the pregnant person's bloodstream that's floating there. What's happening is you're getting that exchange. If you think about pregnancy that's happening between the placenta and mom, right? Those fragments are coming from there. So it's kind of, it's placental DNA, right? That's coming, that's floating in pieces. And what we can do is analyze that and look for certain genetic things. Specifically for NIPT, we're typically looking for chromosome aneuploidies, which means extra or missing entire chromosomes. Um, we can also look for pieces um, of certain chromosomes that may be extra or missing. Um, and even sing certain single gene disorders, right? There's certain things that happen brand new in a baby um, that's at the gene level, a DNA level change that we can also screen for as well using that same technology. So again, basically fragments of DNA DNA that has been that have been broken off that are not encapsulated in the cell that we're able to isolate um, and sequence in the laboratory. And the blood is just from her arm. Yep. Yep. Just takes yeah. a couple. Yep. A couple tubes of blood, mm -hmm. and we can screen for those things. Mm -hmm. I've been learning more about the like really deep anatomy and biology of pregnancy and other women's you know life cycles. And um, I learned about how integrated the placenta is with the uterine lining and that 
that's really where hemorrhaging happens. Cause I'm always like hemorrhaging, like women are losing a third of their blood, you know, and a, you know, something bad is happening. I'm like, where's all that blood coming from? Like, I don't understand. And so I recently am, am discovering like, oh, it's because the placenta is so integrated into her uterus that it's almost like it's truly the, a parasite that is like integrated. And so when that placenta is either dislodged or damaged or something happens, like the access to her entire blood flow is right there. And so that's, I'm assuming that's where these pieces of DNA can kind of traverse into her body. Cause I've always thought that too. How the heck I thought it was like a little bubble sterile, like, yeah. you know, like how the hell is that DNA getting in the body? But that's, is that the way? That's you're absolutely correct. That's the interchange right there, right? It's coming from that, that connection with the placenta and the uterine lining and absolutely. And I I think it's one of the important things that we as counselors want to make sure people understand as well, that when we're talking about looking at those pieces of DNA, that it is coming from, from the uterus. And it's one of the main reasons this is called a screening test um, is because there can be differences that occur in the DNA of the placenta than what's the baby, even though they all started from the same group of cells, right? You can have differences that occur between that between that placenta um, and the baby. So again, yeah. as a screening tool, we can look for these things, but it's always important to understand that a diagnostic test is needed to confirm um, any screening test results. So, uh, so we may find an increased risk for Down syndrome, which is an extra copy of chromosome 21. It's extremely important that that patient understand that, hey, there's, there's a chance, right? There's a very good chance this baby may have Down syndrome, but you do need to have confirmation testing either through an amniocentesis um, or a chorionic villus sampling during the pregnancy or waiting till after the baby's born and taking a blood sample, but something needs to be done in order to confirm that test result. That actually leads me to my next question, which is, is there any other way we can sample the baby? You said amniotic fluid and you said some other really techie things. So are those, what, is that part of your offering too? Like what are other you can get it from? Mm-hmm. So when I worked as a prenatal counselor um, in clinic before NIPT was a thing, um, it was the main tool that we discussed all the time was the diagnostic testing. I would say that we would offer a hormone testing um, that is not nearly as good as NIPT is today, um, but we would also talk a lot about diagnostic testing as a, as a first-line offering for women who were over 35. Um, and those tests, like you said, amniocentesis is exactly as you said it. It's basically using a needle to go in and take out a little bit of fluid um, that's from that amniotic sac. So that fluid that the baby is floating in. What that fluid has in it is baby skin cells. Um, And so baby skin cells are floating in that fluid as well. And so you can culture those up in the laboratory and then you can take a look at the baby's chromosomes. And so in that case, you're looking at um, those cells that are actually from the baby and you can tell for sure if there is a chromosome issue um, that's happening. Um, Similarly, I mentioned, yeah, CVS. CVS just a little bit earlier in pregnancy. Uh So amnios are typically done after 15 weeks of pregnancy. CVS can typically be done as early as 10 weeks up until about 12, sometimes 13 weeks. In that case, you're taking a piece of the placenta off. Um, so it's a li- you could argue a little bit more invasive, right? Like you're taking a little biopsy and a little chunk there out of the placenta. Um, but those are the differences. Those two tests can give you what we would call a more confirmative test. Amnio, like I said, is for sure the, the fetal cells. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting to hear about like, okay, it's the skin cells and then you grow them up in the lab and then do further testing. Cause like, 
like, I mean, I don't know what I thought. I certainly didn't think the baby was putting its arm out in the belly, you know, like, oh, <laughs> it's it's coming, you, know, you know, like, but I don't know. Also didn't know what I was thinking. I, you know, happened. Um, do, uh, is it, and it, it's accessed through the abdomen of the woman, not through the yep. vagina. Correct. So for amnios, it's really just outside the belly. I've heard some people think, oh, it's through my belly button. No, we don't, they don't tend to go that route. They just kind of find what they do is it's ultrasound guided. Um, and so they kind of see, hey, where's the baby hanging out? We want to find a little pocket of fluid kind of away from the baby. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Turn the needle in. It's ultrasound guided. They'll again, take out a little bit of that fluid. Um, there is a small risk of miscarriage. Um, it's typically much less than a half of 1% for most providers who offer that testing. Um, but you are making a hole, right? Um, and so there can be some risk that's associated with that. Um, and I think it's we're seeing a lot less amnios perform these days because the screening tests are a whole lot better than they used to be. Like I said, when I was first out of school, all we had to offer people were hormone tests um, as screening tests, which would just look at like things like HCG level, PAPA, different of these pregnancy hormones, and then try to use those levels to give a an estimate as to what your risk could be for certain chromosome issues. It was never looking at DNA or chromosomes. It was simply looking at those hormone levels and kind of giving a best guess. Tests weren't that great. Um, and so a lot of women would end up in my office um, with high-risk screening results. And I'd spend a lot of time talking about amnios. Um, with NIPT, um, since it's been launched, you're seeing a lot fewer people getting what you could arguably say is a false positive from a screening test. They can still happen, but it doesn't happen as often. So you've seen a decrease in the number of diagnostic tests like amnios that have been performed over the years because the screening tests have gotten a lot better. Well, I can't wait to see what another 10, 20 years can provide us. Um, No, I've gone away from our questions, but these are some really basic questions that I think our listeners are really going to enjoy these responses to. Um, Does every woman get these tests when she's pregnant or when do women have to get these types of tests? Yeah. So every woman should be offered these tests as part of their pregnancy. So you should be offered, um, if you're pregnant, screening test options, as well as diagnostic testing options. So the American um, College of Obstetrics and Gynecology has said, hey, everybody can do this. It used to be that we would only offer diagnostic testing to women who were over 35 that's not true anymore. Anyone who's pregnant is has this option to do screening test and or diagnostic test. A lot of women, when they do decide that they want this information, which I think is an important question to, to ask yourself when you're offered them is, hey, is this information I want in my pregnancy? If you say yes to that, a lot of women will take the screening test route first because um, it's a way to find out, hey, am I at high risk or low risk? Yeah. Um, and if you're at high risk, then consider doing the amniocentesis. Um, I've met obviously with a lot of women who are like, I need to know for sure. Like, I don't want any of that doubt. They'll go straight to a diagnostic test. Um, and so that's why it's important to kind of understand what your options are early in pregnancy. So you can kind of start making those decisions and with your healthcare provider. Wow. Yeah. I guess I was still operating under the assumption that it was only women who were over 35 or had uh, a family um, history of genetic diseases, but that's no longer the case. Any pregnant person. It's not true. Any pregnant person. Mm Oh, how cool. How mainstream. Oh, I love Mm -hmm. it. And now a quick word from our sponsors. So you've heard the story of the birds and the bees, right? Well, I'm happy to tell you there's a brand new chapter. I'm talking about Mosey, the first and only syringe designed for insemination at home. 
Mosey has been proven as effective as doctor-administered inner uterine insemination, or IUI. People have been saving thousands of dollars by using Moby's baby kit at home insemination, since it only costs $50 per attempt. That's $50, five zero per attempt. Please learn more about how Mosey's patented design works and read some of the thousands of fertility and pregnancy success stories on their website. Go to www.moseybaby.com. That's Mosey, M-O-S-I-E, baby.com. And now back to the interview. So I was checking out your website. It looks like you have three main women's health offerings, a family planning, prenatal testing, and hereditary cancer screening. So I'd like to walk through, especially the uh, family planning and prenatal screening tests. So first, tell us a little bit about these pre-implantation tests that you offer. Um, When would a woman need this? What's being tested? Kind of walk us through that. Yeah. So I would say anyone who's considering pregnancy, I think the first thing to think about is carrier screening. So carrier screening is one of those tests um, that, you know, uh, you know, I would say a patient and their partner should consider doing together because typically what we're dealing with when we're talking about carrier screening are what we call autosomal recessive disorders. So if we think back to, you know, ninth grade biology class for some people, um, you think about, you've got two copies of every gene in your body. You got our little right? planet squares, y'all. Yeah, you got those little squares. You got to do that. Do that. Remember all that fun stuff. So you've got two copies there. If you, in most cases for most genes, if you've got one working copy, that's enough, right? For your body to be like, I got this, right? Like I kind of know how to function. Um, but when you're missing two, right? You have two non-working copies. That's when you'll typically have signs of the disease. Um, so what carrier testing does is it says, okay, you're healthy, right? Let's take a look and find out what you're a carrier for. Where do you have one copy that's not working so great? Because if you happen to decide to have a child with somebody who is also has a non-working copy of that same gene, you are now at risk of having a child that could be affected with that disorder. Um, so most people are familiar with like sickle cell disease or cystic fibrosis disease. These are diseases that follow that inheritance pattern. Um, so there's carrier screening panels that are available now where you can screen from anywhere from one to close to 500 different genetic conditions um, to find out if you're a carrier and your reproductive partner or a carrier for any of So I'd say for anybody who's considering pregnancy, that's a good place to start, um, kind of in preconception. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of times people don't hear about carrier testing until they're pregnant, um, which again, still important information to have. But at that point, if you find out that you and your partner are both carriers for the same thing, we're back talking about amniose again, right? Um, Because we're like, okay, you've got a risk now. Let's talk about diagnostic testing um, as a tool. Whereas if you're preconception, it can set you up for other options. So let's say you do do carrier screening before you you try to get pregnant. You find out that you and your partner are both carriers for cystic fibrosis. Um, At that case, you could say, hey, maybe I want to look at um, IVF as an option. So you could consider doing in vitro fertilization. They can make those embryos for you um, in the laboratory at the IVF center. And what pre-implantation genetic testing can do is allow us to develop a test that can actually screen those embryos before they're transferred to find out which ones do not carry those 
mutations, those non-working copies of those genes. So that's one of the tests that Natera offers is pre-implantation pre genetic testing for single gene disorders. Um, we also do pre-implantation genetic testing for chromosome aneuploidy. So again, extra missing chromosomes. So when you take that biopsy, a couple of cells like out of that embryo somewhere around day five, Again, we can screen for chromosome issues. If you know that you're at risk for a single gene disorder like cystic fibrosis, we can also develop a test to look for that as well. And the idea being is that you're transferring back the embryo that has the best chance, right, of becoming a healthy pregnancy. So that is one kind of area of our company. It's actually where we started. Um, it was the very first test that we had when, when I started at Natura. Fascinating. I mean, it gives, I mean, it's technically like test tube babies, right? But it's like optimized. And I think there's um, some genetic philosophizing here that you need to think about. I remember in college, right. like an ethics class in terms of what is a genetic disease? And everyone was like, obviously cystic fibrosis, sickle cell. And then our professor, really amazing ethics professor at Drew University said, what if somebody classified, a found a, a gene that makes you gay? Like, let's just say, mm -hmm. okay, what if somebody says that's a disease? And then what if you are screening for that and you're eliminating that gene because that person thinks it, and it was like, Every day I went to that class being like, I know the answer to this prompt that he gave us, obviously. And every day I left being like, oh, we're so screwed, man. If we come up with this technology, there's some people out there who are going to like twist it. Right. And so um, do you have any like experience with that or like, do you have to take yeah, classes like we that? Do. Like, how do you select what's best for people? You know what I mean? And we definitely had those, those classes in, in genetic counseling school as well. Um, and I will say in experience, what you'll see too is I, I think one of the ones that sometimes people don't think about is something like achondroplasia. So achondroplasia is one of the common causes of dwarfing conditions, right? So it's one of the more common dwarfing conditions. Yes. And oftentimes, um, you know, little people who have achondroplasia actually want a child that's similar to them, which I think. Yeah, totally like the deaf sense. community as well. Correct. Yeah. Um, and so the question that, that you'll hear asked is, well, can they screen for the opposite? In that case, they're not screening for the child that has, that would be expected to have, you know, kind of typical stature. You're looking for one that's going to have a dwarfing condition. Um, and is that okay? Right. Is the question oh, and is asked in an ethical way. So technically, yeah, you can obviously screen in the other way as well. Um, and so it does kind of open up a lot of these questions um, that get asked all the time. And to your point, there's there's really no one making those decisions. Right. For um, for anyone worldwide, I would say. For better um, or worse. Right. Mm -hmm. Because depending on who that person is, they can decide different things. Yeah. So. So interesting. I could, we should get a bottle of wine and talk more about this because this For is sure. like so fascinating to me when you're like, what about, what about, um, <laughs> well, um, now I'm off in a, a oh, I know. And I know we were supposed people. to talk about some more testing. I know we were talking about <laughs> yeah. more testing. We talked about preconception. Um, yep. We talked a little bit about NIPT, right? So NIPT yes. is one of the yeah. main tests that people consider during the pregnancy. But yeah. like I said, yeah. um, people can also do carrier screening as part of um, pregnancy testing as well. Um, if someone unfortunately experiences a miscarriage, 
um, during their pregnancy. Um, we also have tests available to find out whether there was a chromosome abnormality um, that was responsible for that. So we can take tissue from that loss and we can analyze it and we can see whether there was an extra missing chromosome or a piece of an extra missing chromosome. Um, and many times that's actually what, what led to the loss, which can give people answers. Because I think oftentimes when people go through a miscarriage, there's a lot of blaming, right, that can happen um, where people are like, I did something right? Yeah, like I did yeah. something wrong, something caused this to happen. And when, and, and about 50% of pregnancies are due, depending on when you have your loss, but can be due to a chromosome abnormality. So having that information that says, Hey, this was there from the beginning. It was just a sporadic thing that happened. You didn't cause it to happen. And actually the chance of reoccurrence is actually very small um, in those cases. So it can be an answer a lot of times when there's not an answer. And so it can be helpful for people who go through that experience. When you say you take a sample, like the woman has to bring in something, maybe that from a home or cause I they can. I, yeah. There's, you know, oftentimes, sometimes people know that they're experiencing a loss, but maybe something that happens at their doctor's office where the doctor yeah. can, can do that collection for them. Uh -huh. Sometimes obviously these losses do happen at home. Mm -hmm. Um, so as well, we have instructions, right. That we can provide people as to how to do that collection and send us back, um, any tissue, right. That, that can be saved from that loss. Um, but yeah, we, we have ways of kind of helping people and walk them through that process. Interesting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the, um, are any of these tests, you know, useful for the mother to know something about her own health? Because I feel like, you know, when we think about prenatal screening, some people may argue, oh, this is more like baby tech, right? It's about the baby's mm -hmm. health. But talk to me. I have an assumption. I have, I'm going to go on the limb here and gamble that it supports women's health as well. Can you talk, tell me that about that? Yeah. So I think there's two places where you're looking specifically at, at women's health. One is I would say just with carrier screening in general, although the hypothesis going into carrier screening that you're super, you're healthy, right? Um, oftentimes we uncover things um, when we start looking and we can find things. And I would say one of the things that commonly we will find is something like people who are carriers for fragile X syndrome. So the reason we're, we're screening for fragile X is obviously to tell you the chance that you would have a child with that condition, which is one of the more common causes of male intellectual disability. Um, but what can happen as a female is it can affect your reproductive, right? Like it can cause you to be at increased risk for premature ovarian insufficiency or oh. failure. Um, and so there are some health effects of being a carrier um, that can be important. So oftentimes, like I said, we will uncover, although maybe the goal was, was like you said, it's to find out stuff about the baby. We can uncover things um, that are important for the female as well, who's a carrier. Um, and again, we see that a lot with X-linked disorders, meaning women, we've got two X's. One doesn't work. We've got the other one that compensates, but sometimes it doesn't compensate as well as we need it to. Right. right. So you can yeah. see some health effects when you're a carrier of an X-linked disorder. Um, so that would be one instance of it. The other one is the other product you mentioned, hereditary cancer testing. So hereditary cancer testing um, allows us to screen to see, hey, do you carry a change in one of these genes that predisposes you to cancer? Um, most of the genes that have been identified and are on hereditary cancer panels at this point are looking specifically at an increased risk for breast cancer, ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, um, colorectal cancer. Um, so those are the genes that are on those panels. And so those are definitely things that I think are specific to women's health. Um, although obviously I would say men 
and should be considering hereditary cancer testing as well. Um, but it is one that specifically that, that we um, that we have available to kind of help people take control of, of that cancer risk because there are things that you can do in many cases that can reduce your risk of developing cancer. So you say that prenatal screening and testing has expanded beyond just high-risk groups to any pregnant human. Um, what about the cancer screening? Do you need to have meet some criteria in order to get that test done? Yeah, that's a really great question. So for prenatal, yes, I think you've seen expansion, right? And that's been supported by the professional organizations as well that's trying to get this out to as many people as possible. I think the goal is, again, to, to kind of diversify this and free up, free it up, right? Like these are important tests that people should be able to choose to have if they want them. Um, so yes, on the prenatal screening part. On the hereditary cancer, there's a lot of people, I will say, who, who feel very firmly, specifically in regards to the breast cancer genes, um, that they feel that this should be available to everybody. At this time, there are some criteria, right, that, that I would say that most, you know, insurers and payers are looking at that's kind of based on um, national cancer kind of guidelines where they're saying, hey, did you did you have someone in your family who had breast cancer under the age of 50? Um, did you have someone with ovarian cancer? Did you have someone with pancreatic? So there's like a list, right? We have a like a list on our website as well to kind of help people identify this. But there's a lot of these family history forms where you can kind of check, check, check. Hey, do I, do I meet criteria? And in the majority of cases, that means that your insurance company will typically pay for that testing. Um, I think we're also trying to be able, we believe strongly that should people should be able to choose the genetic information that they want access to. So we try very hard to bring our cash pay price down. So if it's something like, hey, maybe I don't qualify, but this is important information and I really want it. Um, we try to make that affordable if you want to cash pay and not go through insurance. That's an interesting thing. We talk a lot with my founders about who's going to pay for this. And unfortunately, in women's health, oftentimes the there is no billing code. And so let's add on another three years to your product development timeline Correct. because the government doesn't even recognize this as a thing because no one's, there's no predecessor, there's no nothing. And uh, these screening tests, specifically for these maternal health, the miscarriage, prenatal, it uh, how like um, attractive is it to cover that for insurance versus covering a baby with illnesses? You know, I would think that that is the argument you give them to make sure they cover it, but is it still a battle to get them to cover it? It is still a battle. It is still a battle. I will say with a lot of the more common things like NIPT for, for Down syndrome and things like that, like that is typically covered. Um, you add on additional conditions. Um, like you said, you've got to prove that there's clinical value um, for the insurance company to, to deem this something that's going to be covered or the government, right, to deem that it's something that should be covered. Um, so it is a battle every time you kind of make an adjustment right? Or, or have a new product um, that you're looking at is, hey, because we, you know, spend a lot of time and put a lot of effort into studies, right? And clinical trials and things like that to show one that the test works, right? And it works as we say it does, but that it does do that, right? Like there should be value in these tests that we're providing to people. And to your point, um, early diagnosis, when you're talking about genetic disease, typically makes a very big difference um, when it comes to, I mean, I would say just the health and outcome, but also to your point, the cost um, to the healthcare system, if you can identify it early. Um, oftentimes, a lot of these disorders that you'll see on like our carrier screens or things like that may be rare. And, and unfortunately, people end up in a quite a diagnostic odyssey, right? When they may have a child that has one of these conditions because it's not easily diagnosed. Um, and so it can take sometimes couples a very long time to get a diagnosis for their child that could have been 
I would say circumvented, right? If they had known early on that they were carriers and had had testing early on to know that the baby was affected. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let's say a couple uh, didn't do the pre-screening. They're pregnant. They get their test done. They find out my baby has this deadly disease. Um, yeah. You know, what do genetic counselors tell them? What do they tell them? you know, abortion is, you know, aborting that fetus is an option, like, or is it all about planning for the birth and like, how are you going to accommodate kind of walk us through that hard part, the part that I, oh, the, the, the part, part that I you saw, saw yeah, the today. part that you saw in yeah. person, yeah, and it is hard. And I would say given current, you know, news headlines, I think it's, it's looking like it's going to get a little bit harder. Yeah. Um, I think for everybody who works in this area, um, counselors are, are trying to provide choices to people. Right. So feel very strongly that everybody should make decisions that are in line with their personal values um, and what they want. Right. And so you'll see that counselors are are extremely non-directive typically in that way. But we do very feel very strongly that people should have options in front of them. So that conversation that a counselor has with a couple when they're faced with a diagnosis like that does vary. Right. So the, the counselor's training is to be like, tell me right? Like where you are in this, because my goal is to help you make an informed decision um, about what you want to do next. So yes, for many couples that may be depending on where they are in pregnancy, it may be discussing a termination of the pregnancy. Um, For others, it may be, I need to get you connected with some people locally um, who have a child with this condition, right? So you can prepare for what that means. It also may mean we know that this baby may have heart problems, right? So I'm going to get you in, right? And make sure that you meet with a cardiologist, right? So we make sure that we have the right healthcare lined up for when this baby is born, that you have the right people at the hospital, that you deliver at the right hospital, right? It may be important for somebody who's in a rural rural area, if they find out their baby has one of these conditions, that they need to be somewhere that has the right doctors on staff to care for that baby when it's born. So a lot of times it is a preparation conversation, but again, that's going to be really dependent on the couple, right? How they're processing. Oftentimes there's many conversations, right? That are going to happen after this. I'm, as you saw, like breaking bad news is not a one-time deal, right? Like a lot of people will shut down, which I think is natural, right? When you hear something like that. And so it is something that the counselors are trained to be like, let's talk again. Let's talk again, (laughs) right? We're going to keep kind of getting and kind of working with the couple to get them where they want to go. In light of Roe versus Wade, and, you know, and I'm not bringing this up listeners, if you want to learn more about abortion, we have those episodes, but just in the terms of this conversation, um, you know, how do you think the Roe versus Wade going away could affect how genetic counselors advise their patients? I think it's going to make it very hard. I mean, like I said, I, I live in Texas, um, so we're, we're already kind of limited to a certain degree in what people have access to in the state of Texas. Um, I will say that in the past, I would say, you know, let's say 20 years ago when I was practicing, it wasn't uncommon for me to talk about, okay, you may need to look at it in another state right? If this is something that you want to do. I, I think that looking at the headlines right now, I, I know that most counselors are looking at that going, okay, what, what do I think my state's going to do? And yeah. what's the state closest to me going to do? Yeah. Um, and right. what are my options there? If, if a patient needs that, yeah. right. Yeah. And, and decides to go that route, what, what are we looking at? Um, yeah. So I would say that's the type of conversations yeah. that, that are probably realistic. I have to say, you know, in Texas, the law is extremely interesting um, in, in any aiding and abetting, right. Can, yeah. can put you at risk. Um, so oh, aiding and abetting as a genetic counselor. Oh my gosh. Yep. 
Oh God. So it, it does make things extremely difficult, right? Because again, at the end of the day, all the counselor wants to do. You're thinking about your own budget. butt too. <laughs> Not yeah. only so now butt. it's made it tricky yeah. as, as to what you feel like you can really do. Um, where our training is, look, I just want to help this couple, right? I'm trying yeah. to get this couple what they need um, and what's best for them. So it, yeah. it does make it more complicated. So I think it's going to make it harder on counselors. Yeah. It's going to be harder. I have two more quick questions about the abortion thing and how it relates to this, just because I think the medical side of it is so fascinating, um, regardless of pro-choice or whatever, like just healthcare. Um, can you identify a lot of these abnormalities before six weeks of pregnancy? Or is there literally like you have to wait till certain weeks of pregnancy to even find these things out? It's really, you have to wait. So even with the screening tools that we provide, like typically you need to be at least nine weeks closer to 10, you know, in some cases closer to 10 for certain tests um, in order to even run the screening test. And like I said, the screening test is not diagnostic. Yeah. So it's really only telling you that you're at high risk. I, God forbid anybody, and we're very clear as counselors, right, who counsel on this, these tests all the time, that you should not make irreversible decisions based on a screening test. Like you really need to be doing a diagnostic test, but that does extend the timeline to your point, right? Like amnio can't be done until 15 weeks of pregnancy. Um, and so you're typically not finding this information out until you're well into your second trimester yeah. of pregnancy. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, just on a personal, uh, personal note, I, I, I find it frightening, right. That, yes. that this is where we're heading. Um, because there's a lot of headlines about, you know, I, I don't think they understand this, this part of it. No, of course um, they don't. Of course they don't. <laughs> uh, and my one last question about abortion, uh, is, I've heard that they can criminalize potential miscarriages in the hospital in the ER room because if they suspect that you actually tried to do an abortion, there could be homicide charges. And so could a screening test for the potential cause of that miscarriage might help here? You know, I mean, it's a preposterous, but if this is our reality, we got to come up. I think with it's ideas. an interesting question. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would argue at that point, like, does that push the, push the, you know, the issue of let's make sure we understand what caused this, you know, this before this somebody says, Oh, she tried to do an abortion. Like potentially there could be a miscarriage test with the sample that then. You yeah. Show. I mean, it would, I mean, my fear would be then the flip of it is if you don't, if they didn't that, have it, that's right. Right. Like, right. Then what is yeah. that? Is that, does that help people? Yeah. Um, but in general, I think that, you know, for most, most situations, having more information does help. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Thanks so much for going down that rabbit hole with me and my listeners. I think that we'd all really benefited from that and have armed ourselves with some more arguments for our upcoming debates in our own communities. Yes. Um, which is a reminder for y'all to vote locally, because if it's up to the states, it's your vote in your community that is going to depend, you know, essentially predict women's health in your community. Um, so, Jennifer, is there more need for innovation in genetic t- testing for women's health? What are some areas in genetic testing, maternal, oncology, what have you? What are some tests that you like wish were out there? Like where where else can we innovate in this? Yeah, for for sure. And I would say, I know specifically talking to your audience, I would love to see more female-led driven um, technology companies in this space um, that are, because I find that um, oftentimes they're still run by men these days, right? And I feel like we do play a big part of that mm -hmm, as counselors saying, hey, 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 right? Like I said, being the patient advocate, but also as females, right? Like um, you should be listening to us. Like we're also the consumers here. Um, So I would love to see, right? More companies that are kind of founded and started and run um, by females. 
um, so they can push forward that. I it is genetics is the reason I got into it. It's ever changing. There's ever there's so much potential. It's hard to even name one area. I think that you're seeing a lot of growth in just the number of things that we can look at, and I think a lot of that's being driven now by the fact that it used to be very expensive to sequence a gene, right? Like you think back 15 years, Myriad had a quote unquote patent, right, on BRCA1 and 2, and they were charging three to four thousand dollars for that test. Um, the, the sequencing tools have gotten so much better these days that it's brought down the cost of the testing. It's allowed us to add more genes in there. So it's a lot easier, right, for everybody to do this. System. And also you can't patent genes. So thank you. Um, and so um, it's allowed us, right, to really spur, right, a lot of new genetic tests and new players in that space. Um, so I think there's going to be more need for, a, again, I would say even like one example, we have a new product at Natera that's specifically looking at renal genetics. So renal genetics is one of those things that when you went down the list of things that counselors, the spaces that counselors worked in, if you looked at that five years ago, I don't think anyone would have said renal genetics. Um, but it's a huge new area, right, where we're looking at, hey, there's a lot of people who have end-stage renal disease that actually have a genetic cause, right? So I think typically what you've seen in genetics is this thought of thinking about kids with genetic diseases, right? Or cancer specifically, but now we're realizing, hey, no, there's a lot of conditions like this that may not pop up until much, much later um, that still have a genetic component to them. And so, and that's a whole new area that's just popped up in the last couple of years. So I would say pick your favorite organ, right? Um, and there's all sorts of potential. We've seen a lot of growth in the last 10 years in cardiology, right? Specifically. So cardiac genetics. So you're seeing a lot of these things come through. Um, I also think there's going to be any innovation in how you really give patients access to their information, both the genetic test that gets relayed to them, but how that changes over time. I'd say it's the struggle that all the laboratories are having right now regarding, hey, this may change. We learn new stuff about these genes all the time, right? And so we have to have resources to kind of stay up on that. But the bigger question is, how do we get back in touch with people, right? So the technology to even do something like that, like how do we maintain contact? How do we contact? Because a lot of times, especially for an OB, right? They go in, they do the pregnancy, they leave, right? Um, they may have the hereditary cancer test through their OB gen, but then they move, right? Like, so the question is, how do I let them know if something changed, right? And their genetic test results. So I think there's a lot of even side tech, do you know what I'm saying? That's not even, I would say a genetic test, but how you maintain this data, how you share it with patients, how you make sure patients understand what they're getting, what they're not getting, what their raw data means. We get a lot of patients, right? Who did some consumer testing. Oh yeah. They go, hey, I want my raw data. And I was like, whoa, really? Why? Like, what are you going to do with it? Um, I know. Yeah. Oh boy. Yes. I know you so much because I, my first startup was a DNA based dating app and a lot of people wanted their raw data. And I was like, I'll, we can send it to you, but like, you're it. not going to know what the hell it's talking about. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And so I, you know, but I think that's where it's showing these areas, right. Where no one's really figured out the path forward yet. Yeah. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity all around. So much opportunity because I think that also technology sometimes is uh, the goal is to remove the human component, but it's so important in this case to maintain a human component because, you know, even if we quote unquote, dumb it down to you have cancer or, you know, predisposed, like there's ethics behind just emailing somebody that with a subject line, like you're positive for cancer, right? Like we have to think about like, 
how and when do we tell people and things like that, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a lot of, I mean, we're looking at it. A lot of laboratories are using, you know, chatbots and things these days, right? Um, we've been very careful internally, like all of our chatbots are trained by genetic counselors, right? Because we went up to your point, you, no one wants to open an email that says surprise, right? Like you're at increased risk for cancer. Um, so we want to be very careful on how we're relaying this information um, in, a, in, 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 a, in a way that doesn't come across too, too disconcerting, but obviously, um, relays the severity, like the seriousness of it as well, right? And and then we want to play catch, right? So we understand, obviously, as this goes out to more people, we're probably not going to be able to have a genetic counselor speak to every single patient, uh, yeah. right? That's out there, but we do want to be available for people who have more questions, yeah. right? So I would say too, if you're a person who's who's thinking about any of these tests, reach out to the lab and see if they have a counselor on staff, um, because that's what we're here for, right? Like we want to make sure people know what they're getting, right? And that they understand it properly and understand what their options are next. So um, I I'm glad to see that a lot of genetic testing companies do employ a lot of counselors because I think that it's important um, to provide that level of service to both patients and, and healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, this has been such a rock star interview. I am buzzing. I want to talk to you the rest of the day, but we got to cut it. And so I'm going <laughs> to Thank you for your time. Thank Um, you. So informative. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to my interview with Jennifer Saucier, the Senior Director of Clinical Genetic Services at Natira. Learn more about Natira at natira.com. Alrighty, Fem fans, be sure to give the show a five-star review and share it with a friend. Join our virtual community at femtechfocus.org and join the thousands of other femtech founders, investors, and mentors advancing women's health. While in the virtual community, sign up to be a FemPro member for only $15 a month and get access to our assets, such as the Femtech Company Database and our self-guided Femtech Accelerator. Keep an eye out for our monthly Femtech Book Club, which happens the last Wednesday of every month, and subscribe to our newsletter. Last but not least, please consider setting up a recurring monthly donation to Femtech Focus. We are a 501c3 nonprofit and rely on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.